0: Throughout this chapter, the 8th chapter of 1 Kings, we've been in for a little while now, we're at the end of it, by the way, uh, we've discovered truths about the Lord that are honestly really great theological truths about him that you wouldn't see at first glance if you if just looked at this, uh, just did a quick reading of it. Um, we've seen these in the context of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now, and by the way, we don't ignore the historical context. Sorry, but Sorry. Didn't even think about that. Wait a minute. I don't have the Okay. That's right. <laughs> That's gone, huh? Okay. Anyway, we don't ignore the historical context. We don't, you know, bypass that and just come up with our own sermons, like I've heard most of my life. By the way, not here. Uh, but uh, we always look at the context. That's always the key. It's the key to everything. Someone asked me a question the other day about something, and I said, basically, the answer is in the context. It's always in the context it seems like, and uh, it's a way to proceed in Scripture. But I couldn't help notice as we went, as I looked at this chapter, First Kings 8, that the great theological truths concerning God, we talked about the presence of God in this chapter. We talked about the glory of God. We've talked about God's faithfulness, God's uniqueness. We talked about transcendence and immanence of God, as Mike talked about also from Acts 17 this morning. You see that in different places in the Scripture. Perfect uh, place to look at it is there. We talked about the forgiveness of God. All these things are true of God. The Lord's character is multifaceted. But no matter how great the character of God is, we can never get God down to an exact science, by the way. can't get him down to exact science to where we, we've got him, you know? We've got him figured out. We can't do that. Um, he's, he can be known, yes. He can be known to us, and yet he's at the same time beyond us. We can't, we can't put him in a box, as Mike said today. On the one hand, the scriptures reveal truths about God. God is this way, the scriptures say. On the other hand, there are things known only to God. We don't know it all. Uh, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, th- the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. And Moses went on to say to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. We're known, we are revealed certain things so we can obey those things. We don't know everything. God knows everything. We, we are very limited outside of what the Scriptures reveal. And if we think we can get God down to an exact science, we are wrong. And if we think that God is our errand boy, we're wrong as well. He's not. He's the Almighty God. That's why the Scripture presents uh, presents us with a high view of God. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord, right, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Uh, That's what Isaiah saw in the seraphim in that chapter said to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of what? His glory, right? So we're the, we're the ones who are the er, are boys for God, not the other way around. God's exalted on high. So now we've come to the end of this lengthy prayer. Solomon's going to sum up his final thoughts. And uh, in this chapter tonight, we're going to examine Solomon's approval, Solomon's praise, Solomon's desires, and Solomon's sacrifices. First of all, notice Solomon's approval. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Look at uh, verses fifty-four and fifty-five. Solomon has finished his praying. It's been a long prayer. He addresses the people once again. But look at look at First uh, Kings eight fifty-four. Whatever I just told you, when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, and he proceeds to address the people again. But that's not the whole story. <laughs> you see, when you study 1 Kings, you've got to compare it with the Chronicles, especially 2 Chronicles. Kind of, a, uh, So let's do that. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is the parallel passage to this. It's going to add some information here that we don't see in 1 Kings chapter 8. 2 Chronicles 7. In 2 Chronicles 6, you have the same basic prayer Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8. And then it goes on and continues in Second Chronicles chapter seven. Let's read Second Chronicles seven one to three. When you take into account both passages, by the way, I believe this is what follows immediately upon Solomon finishing his prayer. Second Chronicles seven verse one. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, here's what happened: happens. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. That's the parallel account. Now the question may come, why is this, is this not this recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8? Why is not there? Well, um, because uh, the only thing I can tell you is... Um, Kings and Chronicles are like the Gospels. Kinda, you have to kind of harmonize them. You look at all four Gospels together and you see how the events flowed. That's how it is with these books. Also, the Kings were written for more of a historical perspective, and the Chronicles were written for more of a, a, a priestly perspective. And so you have the different purposes. So we have to look at both accounts. And here's how I take the order of events to be as I look at both accounts. First of all, you have in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5, 6, 7, you have the uh, installation of the ark. As they begin to dedicate build the temple, or dedicate the temple, rather, they install the ark of the covenant into the temple. Then the glory cloud fills the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord fills the house, says the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon addresses the people. Solomon prays. Solomon finishes praying. Fire comes down from heaven. And then Solomon addresses the people again, 1 Kings chapter 8, and then Solomon offers sacrifices. And I think probably that's what happens in the order of events in these two accounts. At any rate, Solomon finishes praying, and when he gets through, the next thing that happens is 2 Chronicles 7.1, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Now it talks about sacrifices here. Where do those sacrifices come from? Well, if you look in the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 8, if you recall what we read there in verse 5, it says in 1 Kings 8, 5, you might want to keep your finger in both passages, uh, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were sacrificing so many sheep. This is at the beginning, before the prayer. Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they could not be counted or numbered. So I have to assume that these are the same offerings somehow. This works out to where these are the same offerings that are uh, again, used when the fire comes down and consumes them. It also speaks again of the Lord's filling, the glory of the Lord filling the, the house of the Lord. Um, verse three, by the way, Second Chronicles verse three says, "Fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house." Somewhat different from First Kings chapter eight, which says the glory of the Lord filled the house. This says it's coming down upon the house, kind of a different rendering there on this second go round. And again, once again, there's this delay. The priests can't do their job temporarily because the glory of the Lord has filled the house. Now, why did fire come down from heaven? Well, it was a sign that the Lord approved of the events of the day. He approved of the prayers of Solomon. Solomon was deadly serious. Now, you, know, you have to put out of your mind the fact uh, Solomon's later uh, things that happened to him later. You have to put that in your mind for that. We're not there yet. Right now, we see a man who loves the Lord, a man who's worshiping God, a man who prays. And so the Lord approves of these events, and the Lord approves of the purpose of the temple, which is to glorify God, right? The Lord approves of the sacrifices that have already been offered. God is pleased with Solomon. God is pleased with his heart. He's pleased with the worship that's been taking place. By the way, the same thing happened in Leviticus 9 when the tabernacle was finished. Leviticus, the last verse of Leviticus 9 says, when all this took place, there, was, there were sacrifices there. Then fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And the portions of fat on the altar, when, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and it fell on their faces. They're joyful because God has accepted their offering. And so the Lord accepted this, uh, this offering of Solomon. He's approved of it. He is pleased. By the way, the Lord's pleased when our goal is to glorify him, right? He's pleased with that. He is pleased when we repent of sin, as it talks about in 1 Kings 8. He is pleased when we offer him praise, as Solomon does in this chapter. He approves of these things. And then in 2 Chronicles 7.3, the reaction from the people is to bow down and give praise. And they say this, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So Solomon and the people have the approval of God on their activities, because when we glorify God, God approves of this. Secondly, notice Solomon's praise. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon's praise, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54 through 56. It says there, when Solomon had finished praying, this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood up. By the way, it's kind of difficult to determine the exact chronology of events here. I'm trying to piece it together as best I can. But he, stood, he stands up and blesses all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word is failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses his servant. Verse 22, if you go back to verse 22, it says he started the prayer by standing. It says there, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. That's how he starts his prayer. But... Somewhere along the way, his posture changes, and he finishes the prayer. In Verse 54, it says, he finished his prayer and arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees. So he starts out standing, and he ends up kneeling before everybody. Now, there's no no incorrect way to pray as far as posture is concerned. I've heard people say that you have to pray on your knees. I love what uh, uh, Spurgeon said one time. Uh, He said, you know, I've known some people to be in the habit of, of getting on their knees to read their Bible, he says, "Such an uncomfortable thing to be doing. I'd rather sit back in my easy chair and read the Bible." That was pretty funny. But there's no correct way, incorrect way to pray. No, and if, as far as posture is concerned, you see people in the Bible standing, you see them kneeling, you see them sitting, you see them lying down on their face before God. Now, you know, I'm guessing that Solomon prayed this way on his knees because he wanted to show the nation he's praying before the entire nation, basically here in this dedication. He's showing the nation his, his, his probably his submission to God as the king of Israel. Uh, he's showing the nation his humility before God. This is a great example to Israel. Think about this. The king, if the leader of our nation, leader of any nation, did this, what humility and, and, and example this would be. It would be absolutely amazing. This is what Solomon was doing in his time as the king. The wisest man that ever lived, by the way, is bowing before God in front of the whole nation. That's a great example of the nation. So the the nation sees a man who loves God. They they see a man who sets the example, a man who is pointing them to the Lord by his very example. So Solomon gets off his knees, he stands up again, and he blesses the people according to verse 56. says he does that with a loud voice. Why is he doing that with a loud voice? Because so many people are there. And he doesn't have a microphone in those days. His voice is the microphone. So he's he's speaking loudly. You know this takes us back to the beginning of the dedication, by the way, of the temple. At the beginning, look at verse fourteen. He does the same thing here. Verse fourteen. This is this is his beginning address. It says in verse fourteen, the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and has fulfilled it with his hand." And he goes on with this address, and that is what he's doing here at the end as well. He's blessing the Lord again. He's blessing Israel again by blessing the Lord. Remember we talked about that earlier? He blesses Israel. How does he do it? By blessing the Lord. And he does this again at the end. He just can't seem to get enough of giving God the glory. And so at the end of this prayer, he offers a word of praise again to the Lord. And as it turns out, it's basically the same as at the beginning of this this prayer. In verses 14 to 21, And his first original address to the people, he he glorifies God for his faithfulness, right? He praises God for his faithfulness. And now he returns to the subject again. In verses 14 to 21, he praises God for being faithful in that he allowed Solomon to build a house, the original dream of David. And God has fulfilled his word by allowing Solomon to build a house. And in verse 56, at the end of the prayer, Solomon again returns to the subject of the faithfulness of God, and he says the Lord has promised to give Israel rest, and he fulfilled that promise. In other words, he's faithful. Again, returns to the subject of faithfulness. When he says, he talks about rest, the Lord has given Israel rest. He's got reference to the fact that God has settled Israel down in the promised land. He's allowed them to live in the promised land and inherit that land. And God fulfilled that word. And again and again throughout this chapter, you see God, God's faithfulness exalted. He's faithful again and again to his people. Now look at verse 56. This is a very interesting sentence in there. It says this. Solomon says, not one word, we're talking about God's faithfulness, not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised be through Moses his servant. That phrase is being if you've if you've been reading through your Bible, you've seen that phrase before. Similar phrase. Joshua 21 45. In and that, in, that, in that verse, Joshua 21:45, Joshua says, "Not one of the good promises which the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All came to pass." And then in his farewell speech, Joshua again, Joshua 23:14, he says this, "I am going the way of all the earth. I'm going to die." And, and, and you know, in all your hearts and all your souls, that not one word of all the good words which the Lord our God spoke concerning you has failed." All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, understand that, you know, as soon as that, that is said, somebody says, well, especially back in Joshua, what about, you know, it says not all, none of the promises of God have failed. What about he promised that they'd have so much land in Israel and yet that never came about in history? They never got to their complete and full boundaries that had been promised before. Somebody brings that up. But yet it says his good promises have, have succeeded and they've been fulfilled, and they've not failed, and so on. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a situation like that? Well, here's a couple of thoughts to keep in mind about that. Number one, remember also that God promised something else. He said, look, Israel, we're going to go to the land of promise, and you're going to walk in my word, and you're going to be Joshua chapter one. You're going to obey the word. However, if you don't, he says in Deuteronomy also, uh, if you don't do what I say, you're going to suffer the consequences. That you're not going to get everything right now, I'm promising you, and so you go into judges at the end of Joshua, they're not possessing all the land, it's because of their sin, they disobeyed God. And whenever we disobey God, we don't come up with what we originally thought was going to happen. You remember also the Lord spoke when the the Lord often told Moses and Israel about going to the promised land, and then there's that day in Numbers 20 where uh, God says to Moses, Speak to the rock. And what does he do? Moses he messes it up, and he gets angry, and he and he strikes the rock twice. And God says, "You're not going in the Promised Land. You're not going in because you disobeyed me." So sometimes conditions are not met. The Lord has set. We blow it. And then another thought to think, keep in mind, is all the promises God fulfilled up to Joshua 21 or 1 Kings chapter 8, they were fulfilled in history. Uh, on God's timetable up to that time. Yes, he fulfilled all the promises he had made up to that time in history. There's future promises to be, to be fulfilled yet in, in coming days, but this is his timetable. Up to that time in history in Joshua 21, not one good word failed of the promises God had made. Same thing is true in 1 Kings chapter 8. <clears throat> so there will be future fulfillments. We're on God's timetable, not ours. Solomon is absolutely enamored with the faithfulness of God. He can't get enough of it. He keeps talking about it, and he keeps returning to the subject. And we should be enamored with it, too. We should be enamored with the subject of the faithfulness of God. It's something we should, that should occupy our attention every day. How could we not think about God's faithfulness to every single day in so many ways? And so Solomon praises God for his faithfulness. Thirdly, notice Solomon's desires. Solomon's desires. Look at verse fifty. That's 57 to 61. Verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us, Solomon says, as he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us, but that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, and no, there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his cam- commandments as at this day. Now, Solomon expresses three desires in these verses, three desires. Now, the way we know that it's the desires by the grammar, notice the word, the, the word may, is a tip-off for that. Notice the word may, three times, verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us. Verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to himself. Verse 59, and may these words of mine be near to the Lord. The word may is used to express a desire or a wish. This is a desire, a deep-seated desire. Solomon has a wish. He's asking God to fulfill these things. And he names three desires. First of all, he has a desire for the Lord's continued presence in verse 57. He has a desire for the Lord's continued presence. He says in verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. Now, The first thing Solomon does when he starts to dedicate this temple, the first thing he does in 1 Kings chapter 8 is he says, I want the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. It's not in the temple. It's in Jerusalem in a tent at the time. And he goes and has the priest go get it. They bring it in the temple. Why? Because the Ark of God symbolizes the presence of God. Solomon wants the Ark of God in the temple. He wants the Lord's blessings in the temple. The Ark of God is a vital piece of furniture, as we know from reading the Old Testament. It went before Israel in the wilderness. Uh, it was originally in the, in the tabernacle. Solomon wants it in the temple also. And so he expresses this desire. for. And now he's, he's, he expresses the desire for the Lord's abiding presence with them in addition to the Ark of the Covenant. So again, we're revisiting another theological subject we've seen already in this chapter: the presence of the Lord. He says, "May the Lord be with us as He was with our fathers." Solomon wants God's presence with him, as He was with. And he says, "Do it in such a way as He was with our fathers." The Lord clearly was with the fathers of Israel, the, the founding fathers of Israel, the, the, one, the ones who were at the beginning of the nation, like Abraham. He was with Abraham. He called Abraham, the Lord did. He worked with Abraham. He made promises to Abraham. And he told Abraham in Genesis 15, 1, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. In other words, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. You don't have to be afraid at all. He was with Abraham. He was with Isaac, another father in Israel. Isaac, the son of promise. And in Genesis 26, 24, the Lord appeared to Isaac, and he said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear I am with you. I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. He was with Jacob as well, Genesis 28, 15. The Lord says to Jacob, behold, I am with you. Again, I'm with you, and I'll keep you wherever you go. He was also with Moses. Uh, when Moses was called to lead Israel out of Egypt, uh, Moses didn't want to do that job. And in Exodus 3, 11, Moses says, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh of Egypt. This is the one leading the nation of Egypt, powerful Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm out here in the the, you know I'm a shepherd boy this time. Who am I to go to Pharaoh that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God said this. What did He say? Certainly I will be with you. That's it. You can go because I'm going to be with you. That's He's guaranteeing Him His presence. And so that's all, you know, that's all he needs. That's all you need, Moses, is my presence. I'm with you. Don't worry about it. He was also with Joshua. In Deuteronomy <clears> 31.6, Moses said to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at the people you're going to go to, the Canaanites. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Heard that verse before, he will not fail you or forsake you? This is God's commitment to his people. He's a God who commits to be with his people. His presence is with us. And Solomon's prayer is this. His wish is that he's saying, Lord, just as you've been with our fathers, like Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just like you've been with them, be with us in the same way in the present. Be with us like that in the future. We want your presence like you gave it to those guys. After all, what good is the temple if you're not with us? It won't matter at all. Solomon has stated this matter in a positive way in 1 Kings 8. May the Lord your God be with us. But then he turns around and he says it in a negative way. He says, may he not leave us or forsake us. May he not leave us or forsake us. Now, someone who understood the possibility of God's presence not being with them was Moses, by the way. Moses, back in Exodus 32, the people in Aaron make a, a golden uh, calf, an idol. And God is so angry with the people, very angry. He says this. He says, look, because you've done this thing, Exodus 33, he said, I'm going to send my angel before you. I was going to go before you, but now I'm going to send my angel before you. He says, "But I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate peace people; lest I destroy you on the way." He says, "You know what? You, you've angered me so much. I'm not even going to go with you now. My, my angels are going to go with you, not me." And Moses is is very troubled by this. He's very troubled by the fact that the Lord they're going to go into they're going to go into Canaan, and, and God's not going to go with them. Think about that for a minute. He's troubled by this statement. He dreads the thought of being without the Lord's presence, and he dreads it so much. The Lord finally has mercy on Moses, and he says in Exodus 33, All right, Moses, my presence shall go with you. My presence shall go with you. And Moses said, If your presence does not, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. In other words, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. <laughs> because without your presence, we're nothing at all. Nothing's going to work. Can you imagine? And we talked about this before. Can you imagine what it would be like as a believer if you you didn't have the Lord's presence with you? Think about that for a minute. Think about how many times you've been in a situation, in many situations, you've prayed wherever you've been in your life. You have prayed, and some here are from another country right now (laughs) in this auditorium with us, that they're working in another country. Think, Jonathan, how many times you've been in Africa and and situations maybe where you prayed where you knew God was with you and you took comfort in that. Think about the times in your life where you knew God was with you and you took comfort in that. What would it be like if he wasn't with us? What would it be like if the Holy Spirit did not indwell us? What would it be like if Christ was not always with us to the end of the age? What would it be like without his presence? But the fact is, he is with us. We can take comfort in that and be reassured by that. And that Old Testament promise Joshua, that was made to Joshua is confirmed today in Hebrews 13.5. It says there, be content with what you have, for he himself has said I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'm not going to desert you. That's from the Old Testament, that promise. Carry it over into the New. I'm not going to, my presence is going to go with you, he says. That's the promise to God's people. And this is not something we should take for granted ever. Solomon would never have taken this for granted. So he has a desire for the Lord's continued presence. And then thirdly, or secondly, the next desire, he has a desire for a disposition favorable to God. He desires a disposition favorable to God, verse 58. He says, may may he incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. May he incline our hearts to himself. We can see this desire for a disposition favorable to God in the word incline. It means to have a heart that's bent towards God. I know most of us are aware of the fact that our hearts can be swayed in any direction, right? We know our hearts can be swayed in a moment's notice in any direction. In fact, the natural bent of our hearts prior to the Lord saving us is one of far away from God. We don't want anything to do with God at all. We want to be way far from him. The heart of the natural man, the one without Christ, wants nothing to do with God. First Corinthians 2 says, the heart of the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. He thinks it's ridiculous. He wants nothing to do with it at all. Romans 8, his mind is hostile towards God. This is how the natural man and the natural woman are, natural versus as opposed to spiritual. The spiritual person is spiritual because he has the Spirit of God abiding in him. The natural person doesn't have that. He's without the Spirit of God. And so in their unredeemed condition, they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't have the capacity to appreciate the things of God. They can't enjoy God, none of that. They're not able to. Romans eight chapter chapter eight tells us, and so, but when God saves us, and when He gives us a new nature and a new heart, He gives us also with that a new inclination to to Himself, a new inclination to obey the Word of God. We have a bent toward God we formerly did not possess. There's a problem though. Even with that that inclination being changed by God, we still have these bodies of death that we carry about. That's the problem, and so sin becomes a reality. Still, for the believer, it's still a reality, unlike Mike's favorite preacher, Brother Micah over there at USF. It's a reality. It's not really his favorite preacher. I don't know somebody's saying that. <laughs> the guy believes in sinless perfection. Well, I'm sorry, but sin is a reality for everybody. And because we have these bodies of death, and so we need to express, as Solomon did, this desire, this wish, that our hearts would be inclined toward God. Or they're liable not to be. Not like we want them to be. The psalmist prayed that way. In Psalm 119, 36, he said this, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Why did he pray that? He knew the inclination of his heart could go otherwise. And he says, Incline my heart to your testimonies, your word, in, this, in, this, in that context, and, away from, and not to dishonest gain. The, pray, the prayer is that his heart is going to be inclined to God and away from dishonest gain, away from things that are evil. That's a biblical prayer. Let me ask you a question, where is your heart inclined tonight? She'd so sit here in front of you, where is your heart inclined tonight? What's the inclination of your heart? Believers, it's true, have a foundational inclination that goes towards God, that goes towards his word, but the problem is that inclination gets distorted in the circumstances of life. If you go through life, it gets distorted, and it ebbs and flows, and sometimes is that an all-time low. Have you ever been there? The inclination of your heart is not really strong towards God. It's like at an all-time low. That's when we need to pray and express this desire to God that he's going to turn the ship around and incline our hearts into him. We need to pray that way. And that desire includes a heart not only inclined to himself, but also to his word, it says, and to his ways. Walk in his ways. We're to keep his commands. This should be the, heart, the, the, the heart's cry of every child of God that our hearts are inclined to God, that our will is meant to God that our, our desires are swayed toward God, that we want to live for him. We should pray this way. Should, this should be our desire of our heart. And thirdly, another, the third desire, Solomon has a desire for his prayer to be remembered before God. His prayer to be remembered before God, verses 59 and 60, Solomon says, And may these words of mine which I have made, supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. That he may maintain the cause of his servant, the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires. So all peoples over the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Solomon's not only praying here because he's expected to. He's not only going through a routine, a uh, time of routine. You know, we're expected to pray. Let's do the prayer. He's not doing that. He wants his prayer. He actually wants his prayer to be answered. He's looking for an answer to prayer. He's directly asking the Lord here to hear his, and answer his prayer. He says he wants his, his prayer to be near to God, day and night, always in front of him, always before him. He wants the Lord to constantly be aware of the fact that he has prayed this prayer, this great prayer, in First Kings chapter 8, and he wants God to, to know it always and to think about it. Now, we know that God knows everything, but he's, you know what he means. He's, he's just saying it in a way that he understands to God. And this prayer that Solomon prayed is a basic prayer for the nation of Israel, kind of a basic prayer for all time. Uh, that he wants all people who sin and come to God to come to God in the temple and pray and get their sins forgiven and go on with God. It's kind of a basic prayer for the nation for all time. Now, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, <clears throat> the prayer request, the way we do prayer requests in our churches. Sometimes we, we have a request for prayer, and somebody says, uh, they don't tell us anything about it, and they say, what? This is an unspoken request, right? Ryan loves unspoken requests. Our missionary loves unspoken requests, by the way. He always said, no, don't, don't give me any unspoken requests. Tell me the facts. But sometimes we do that. We make an unspoken request. And sometimes when we pray, we say this. I know our church does this. I don't think any other church does it. We say, please don't put this in the bulletin. Don't put this in the bulletin. We don't want, we don't want those people to know <laughs> what we're praying about. Don't put this in the bulletin. And other times we say, please do put this in the bulletin because I want this request to be in the bulletin for weeks to come so we can keep praying about it. As Solomon was saying, in effect, in his prayer, please put this in the bulletin and keep it there. I want it to be remembered. This is a standing request. He's making a standing request before God. I want God to always remember, remember this prayer. That doesn't mean that Solomon ever prayed this way again, by the way. He didn't just say, keep this on file, Lord, for future reference. I think, it doesn't say what he did, but I'm pretty sure he probably prayed this way more than once. And he asked that the cause of Israel be maintained. And notice the phrase, as each day requires, as each day requires. By the way, let me ask you this. Do you think standing, uh, a standing prayer request is valid? Is it valid to do that? I think it's valid as long as you keep praying that way, you know, on a regular basis. Pray that way on a regular basis. Uh, on, on a going, our Lord told us in Matthew 6 to give us this day our daily bread, right? Pray on a daily basis for these things. But this is a foundational prayer in 1 Kings 8. I get it. Solomon wants this to be remembered, and he wants his, this is great wish to be remembered for God always, that, that, that they there are that their hearts are inclined to God and that his presence is with them and all these things. Why is this? Look at verse 60. So that... <clears throat> All the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Now, that's a great goal. He says, "I want, Lord, my wish is that you remember these things so that your name is known uh, in all the earth. I want everybody to know who you are. And we've seen this missionary zeal of Solomon more than once. And we've seen it in this chapter already. We're going to see it again in the coming chapters, that Solomon wants to reach people all over the world. The, the temple was a place, a place, as far as Solomon was concerned, for all peoples to pray, right? My, my, my uh, house shall be called a house of prayer. And when Jesus said in the New Testament, but you've made it a den of thieves. But it's supposed to be a house of prayer, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples because God wants all peoples to come to him. That's how Solomon saw this. And that's, that's the end game. That's what we're after. That's the goal. We want people to come to know God. We want people to come to know Christ. That's why we do what we do. And so he stresses this need in verse 61. Uh, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as at this day. He stresses the need for the people to be wholly devoted in heart to God because this is serious business, and he wants them to be devoted to God, loyal to God. Did you notice the last phrase in verse 61 is at this day? That day in time, that day in time, that time period. What we're in right now was a time where people typically in Israel obeyed God. And they, and they wanted to do what was right, and they, wanted, and they lived in a state of obedience. It wasn't always that way in Israel. Many times it wasn't that way, but it was in this time period. And he says, just like it is today, Lord. We're following you. We're praying here. We're dedicating a temple. We want people to come to know you and so on. Let it be this way all the time. And so he prays that it will be that way in the future as well. Well, is it going to happen? Well, we'll see as we go through this book. But I will tell you this. Today's obedience is not guaranteed tomorrow's. It doesn't do it. We can pray. We should pray and trust God always. We've got to trust God always every day. We're not guaranteed anything in the future. We have to watch and pray. And so these are Solomon's desires. He desires God's presence. He desires a, a godly disposition. He desires that God remembers his prayers always, his, in particular his prayer in 1 Kings 8. These are the kind of desires that should mark the people of God. Solomon has So, so, so far, Solomon has God's approval, He's praising God. He's expressing godly desires. And fourthly, look at Solomon's sacrifices in verses 62 to 66. Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all Israel, the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. Because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat and the peace offerings. For the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. So Solomon observed the feast at that time and all Israel with him. A great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king then they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart, and for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, to his servant, and to Israel his people. Solomon's sacrifices. Now the first thing you're going to notice that I noticed when I read this is the exceedingly large numbers that are mentioned here. I mean, think about this, 22,000 oxen are offered, 120,000 sheep. Does that seem outrageous to anybody else or just me? What? <laughs> Two of us, seems outrageous too. You know, I, I, I look at this and I think, why? Why are you doing this? all this? It seems like it's over the top, right? Um, and there, I tell you what, and, and he had to have an additional space to accommodate all the offerings. So he gets this, uh, all, this courtyard in front of the temple, in front of the temple, not inside the temple, to accommodate the extra sacrifices. These are big numbers. By the way, don't think that certain Bible scholars, they call themselves, haven't noticed this. One guy said... These figures are exaggerations for effect. Sounds like, <laughs> I won't say anything there. Anyway, they're exaggerations for effect. Another guy said, they seem excessively large. Another commentator said, they are utterly fantastic. You know, when I read these things, I, I thought of uh, Zacharias in Luke chapter 1. And they, and Luke, Luke was, or he was, not Luke, Zacharias was in the temple praying and doing his service for God and uh an angel comes and says, hey, your wife who's up in years is going to bear a child, and he doesn't really believe it, you know? And, and so because he didn't believe it, the angel said, you, you don't believe me? So therefore, you're going to be a mute until the day of your son's birth. That's how it's going to be. You don't believe me. Now, there are many people who will not accept what the Scriptures say on face value. We call them unbelievers, right? <laughs> Why? Because they don't believe. They don't believe the Scripture. But God's true people will always believe the Scripture and what it says, even though it may seem strange at first or hard to understand, there's many things that are hard to understand in Scripture. There's many things that are clearly understood, by the way. We, don't, we need to work on those, first of all. But uh, there's no real, if, if it comes down to it, there's really no difficulty in understanding this. It's very simple. Uh, you don't have to be, take a great stand on this. Here I stand like Martin Luther. I can do no other. God help me. You don't have to do all that. Because even an elementary child can, under, can figure this one out in time, okay? here's In the first place, notice this. It was not only Solomon... Who was involved in this. It was all Israel. Look at verse 52, uh, 62. The king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice for the Lord. Everybody's involved in this. Verse 63, the end of the verse. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Everybody's involved. Verse 65. So Solomon observed the feast at that time with all Israel with him. By the way, it's the Feast of Booths. So it's a time where It's a community thing. People are getting together and they're fellowshipping as a whole community, rejoicing as a whole community. And then verse 63 says that the 22,000 oxen and the 120,000 sheep were peace offerings. That's the key. They were peace offerings. A lot of people involved in their peace offerings. And this offering, the peace offering, basically the the fat portions and the entrails are devoted to God. And guess what? The rest of it, the flesh, was to be eaten by the people. To be eaten by the people. The regulations for these kind of offerings are found in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7. And the goal of this offering, this peace offering, was to unite the people with the leadership with God in a community uh, effort there. In fact, most, some translations uh, translate the word peace fellowship offerings. It's a time of fellowship. And so they're going to have a feast, basically. <clears throat> the festival normally lasts seven days. That was typical, lasts for seven days. But because this is a special occasion... I mean, how often do you, do you, do you uh, dedicate a, a temple, right, in Israel? This is the first time ever. Special occasion, so they extend this to 14 days. It's a 14-day festival instead of seven days. Now, uh, verse 65, uh, Solomon observes a great feast at that time. At the end of it, it says even seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. Now, let me clear up some possible confusion because it says they celebrated for 14 days, and then you get to verse 56 or 66, and it says this. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king. Okay, so they celebrate for 14 days together, right? Yet on the eighth day, Solomon says, Go on home, everybody. It's all good. So what does that mean? <laughs> what he's saying is this. They had two sets of seven days, and the second set of seven days, on the eighth day, the 15th day, he sent them, he sent them home that day. I know it's, it's one of those things you look at and you're puzzled, right? I was puzzled. Let's just put it away. Me and a couple other people were puzzled over here. So the people ate the sacrifices for 14 days. Now think about this. It takes a lot of food to feed 14 people, a people for 14 days. Lots and lots of food. It takes a lot of food to feed some of us for one day, for one meal. But for 14 days, and then notice verse 55, Solomon and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. It's a way of saying this. It's like saying, see, Hamath is in the far north, in the far north of Israel. Brook of Egypt, Egypt, Wadi of Egypt, is in the far south of Israel. And it's like saying, if you're in America, everybody from Washington State all the way from Florida came together for this, this festival. I mean, everybody was there, all 12 tribes of Israel, all kinds of people there from all over the nation. Um, and so, you, so you, have, you better have a lot of food on hand. So guess what? They have a lot of sacrifices for 14 days, and they're able to handle all this crowd and so, and there's other types of sacrifices given, like burnt and grain and fat offerings and so on and so forth. They're doing all these great festivities. What's the result of all this? Verse, verse 66 tells us on the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king. And they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and Israel's people. People are ble- they're blessed by what has happened here. You can imagine this is an incredible thing that's happened in Israel. This dedication of the temple, this king who loves God, is serving God, who's wise is the wisest king wisest man ever lived. And you have all this going on. They're praising God. They're having this great festivity. They're sacrificing left and right. God is pleased with the sacrifice. He consumes it with a fire. All this is going on. They go home joyful and glad of heart. Why? Because they realize that God has been good to them. God has been good to them. He's shown his goodness to them. And what's funny about this in verse 66, it says, He showed his goodness to David. It doesn't say Solomon. After all this talk about Solomon, Solomon's praying, Solomon's doing all the sacrifices, and so on, and then at the end you get to this, and he showed his goodness to David. Now, that's strange, but the reason he says that is because who was the one who came up with this idea of the temple building in the first place? David, David did. It was his dream. He wanted to do it, <clears throat> and yet, of course, we know in the in the uh, we know that God was behind all this to begin with. But we know that David couldn't do it, and that Solomon, his son. Completed it, but David, was, God was showing his, David, his, his goodness to David, rather, and by completing his temple, he was showing his goodness also to Solomon and all of Israel, so God is good. We could mention one more attribute of God in this chapter, as we've talked about several. We could mention the goodness of God as well. <clears throat> he's goodness to us in so many ways. I think everybody here could testify to that. Uh, we, we, he's good to us and that we can enjoy his, and you think about all his, his attributes we've talked about, we can enjoy his presence. We can behold his glory. We're blessed by his faithfulness. We're amazed at his uniqueness. He's a unique God. We talked about that. We stand in awe of his transcendence, the fact that he's creator and all, uh, far above us. Uh, we are thankful for his eminence. He's with us. He's involved with our lives. And we are also grateful because he forgives us of our sin. So God is good to us in so many ways, so many ways. Now, how do we respond to all this, this chapter? Well, like Solomon, we give him praise. What else can we do? We give God praise for all that he's done. Secondly, we, we request of him godly desire that godly desires might prevail, that we might have those kind of desires. And thirdly, we offer him sacrifices in this day and age. We offer him the sacrifice of ourselves. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service or your spiritual service of worship. We do these things. Now, knowing God and loving God, as we've seen in this chapter, knowing him and loving him, this is what we want to do, and understanding his person and work, that is what makes us joyful of heart. That is what makes us glad in heart. And I think these people were glad and joyful because they were coming to know God, and their, and their king was pointing them to God in a greater way. He's a good God, isn't he? He's a good God. Or as the people said in 2 Chronicles 7, 3, truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is is everlasting. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him tonight for his goodness to us. Lord, we are grateful, as we have talked about tonight in this chapter, that you are good to us in many ways. We don't always recognize that. We complain about many things, and we are frustrated by many things, but we pray that you, would, you tonight would incline our hearts towards you, towards your word, towards praising you, towards recognizing who you are, towards being thankful for you, towards being grateful for your goodness to us we to pray all these things in Christ's name tonight. Amen.